episode 40. We've had quite quite an evening already, and uh, we're thrilled that producer Andrew has Comcast working. Thank you, Comcast, for deciding to come back to help us. We've got a great show for you tonight. Uh, I'm in the house. I'm at, coming to you from Virginia, and we've got co-host Deb Schultz. Hello, Deb. Hello, all. Deb is in, in the valley. I am at home for the first time in a very long time. I am in my apartment. And our illustrating and illustrious guest this week is Dave Gray, CEO of X-Plane and uh, author of GameStorming. Welcome, Dave. Thank you. Hello. Hello. And where are you? I'm in St. Louis, where I live. Excellent. We have the country covered, middle and at both ends. So here on Tumble Vision, we talk about the act of tumbling, which is catalyzing other people to action. And uh, it's a solution. It's a way to navigate a more networked world. It's a way to help make things happen. It's not the same thing as kind of this kind of command, control, top-down way of organizing. And it's happening a lot in, in business and technology and culture, uh, or it's ne- certainly needed in a world full of, like, cacophonous, vast amounts of information and a desire to make things happen faster and a little bit more improvisationally. So I'm a, I'm a comic at Somebody Tumbles Live, and Deb is a, is a is the business super friend, and our other usual regular, Kevin Marks, who's not with us tonight, is the technologist super friend. And then we invite other people from the Hall of Justice to, to play with us, and uh, Dave Gray is one of those here. So we're going to spend a little bit of time uh, on what's been going on this week and what's been recent, and then we'll dive into game storming and, and some of Dave's great stuff. If you're joining us live, show in the, the uh, chat and cover it live, and you should tune into us live every Thursday at 8 o'clock Eastern Standard Time, uh, you get all kinds of fun goodies, including uh, the pre-show and the post-show, and Dave has got a, cha- a, a whiteboard going, right? We've yes. got like a public whiteboard, and uh, we're going to we'll post that to to the site as well. But it's it's on something called Twidla. Dave's going to do some drawing and some visualization with us. So, first of all, the last week, the big events for me, Deb, were that one I saw Social Network with Clive Thompson. Uh, I think the fact that you saw it with Clive Thompson is the cool part. I didn't want to see it unless it was with Clive, so we could talk about it. <laughs> And unfortunately, I don't think my recording worked, but we're going to talk about it another time and, and get into that. So that was that was pretty interesting. And for, me- for those listening, uh, Clive is a journalist and reporter uh, for the New York Times, among other places. So yes. it'll be magazine. interesting to get his point. The magazine, yes. yes. And Wired, uh, a right. great technology writer, collisiondetection.net. And then I also spoke and performed at a conference at Bard at a conference called Being Human in Human Age. And I know we feel like Tumble Vision is very much about trying to humanize technology and keep people at the center of everything. And it was a really interesting thing to be with these Hannah Arendt scholars and philosophers and all these people making and, – and Ray Kurzweil gave the one keynote and Cherry Turkle gave another. Awesome. Dave, Dave, do you ever find yourself at conferences where there are very few technology people? Uh, yeah, occasionally that does happen. Um, I'm, and I, and I, at first, it's a little bit of a, you know, why, what, what, you know, how come there's nothing on Twitter? But, uh, <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, so, um, that, that there was that. I, and I was the first person to get up and say, oh, I made up a hashtag. 
for the three of you who wanted well, to. Well, th- those people are technologists. They're just from a different, they're not social web folks. So, I mean, I would hardly say that Ray Kurzweil and Sherry Turkle don't understand the Internet and technology. Well, I really got the impression that Sherry Turkle doesn't understand it. Oh, the, really? Okay. Say, well, in That's a certain way. I mean, in many ways, obviously, she understands <laughs> it because she's sure She writes about it. But Maybe they're from the outside in. They're not participants. That's <laughs> it. That's the point. I, I, it didn't feel experiential to me, and I, right. I don't know how much we'll get into this. They was game storming later, but my sense you know, is that is that that's part of the difference about how to navigate in this different way, which is to not sort of just disseminate information at somebody to run something, but to really be in an experience with others. And I think it changes your, your point of view. And that was part of my feeling about the social network was that this was a film made by people who don't aren't really in social media, so it doesn't make sense to them in that particular way. And I felt the same way about. Um, a lot of the speakers at this conference, including Sherry Turkle, that for her it wasn't so resonant. Well, you know what's interesting? I don't even think, the, um, just to connect dots with what my past two weeks have been like, because I spoke at a bunch of conferences, some of which think they are part of the social web, web, Internet world, and some who, and one or two that would argue that they know that they're not. And, and I think at, in both cases um, it was very rare I felt that there was no one there who was really participating in. There were those who were from the outside watching. You know, I went to, I spoke at a marketing research conference. So these are people who are real data and numbers driven. It was the first time I've spoken about sort of what's happening with the net and all the things we talk about with Tumble Vision and, and sort of the social fabric pieces. And I, I saw literally not only blank faces staring back at me, like half the audience was, yes, we get it. And the other half of the room was, this woman is crazy. She doesn't know what she's talking about. And then I went to, you know, a conference like Blog World Expo where you think people would understand to be part of it, but they sort of are participating but without really understanding you know, it felt very much like a conference that was a 24-hour infomercial. Everyone was just selling stuff using these tools. So it, 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 what I, the reason that the minute you said that it doesn't feel like these people really get it is what I took away from that, and then there was another conference I spoke at, which we can talk about later, which was more interesting, was that unless people are actually participating and using these tools in, in, in sort of, I hate to use the word genuine, but in, in ways that are sort of permeate both their business and personal life, um, it's really hard to sort of grok a lot of what we talk about in terms of um, the real social fabric pieces as opposed to the telling and selling and yelling in media and one-to-many pieces. Unless you've ever used a lot of the current Internet tools in that way, I think it's really hard. That That's what I took away. So I'd be curious to hear what the, you know, I guess sociologists and, non-internet technologists we're talking about at Bard. I mean, what were they Well, Sherry Turkle is an ethnographer and a psychologist, and she was approaching it that way, and she's mostly focusing on youth. She's an observer. She's always been, you know, psychologists are observers, or you know. Yeah, but, you know, when you hear Dana, who also talks to youth, Dana Boyd, it sounds a lot very different. I mean, I don't think Dana is any kind of utopian about thinking technology is going to solve problems. She's usually a pretty strong advocate for these are human problems. Um, and that, that's part of what surprised me is I think they are human problems. And so to hear somebody mostly say it's a technology problem, creating human problems seems to me to be a little odd. Well, it's, it was very academic also. I mean, when you go to academic conferences, they tend to be observational and sort of Petri dish-ish about stuff in general, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. That's true. I don't know, Dave, do you spend, um, I mean, it was interesting because Dave Rose, uh, David Rose, uh, uh-huh. a leading angel in New York was there and sure. there was just a lot of anger, it seemed, directed at him. Oh, really? Uh, it sounds like a fascinating conference. <laughs> It was a really great conference. So anyway, but I want to make sure we hit the rest of the news in the week before we jump back into these kind of more evergreen issues, because I think this will lead kind of well, actually, to some of the game storming. Uh, is it, did anything, Dave, happen this week on in terms of apps online, or we've had some changes with Google TV or Apple TV? Anything that you felt really was meaningful or interesting to you? Nope. No? Nothing big? How about you, Deb? No. Um, you know, I had some really great conversations. I was at one or two unconferences in the past two weeks. One was by Nokia and one was by, you know, was Food Camp. Well, that was like two weeks ago. But the Nokia, what was really interesting to me, it was like a Nokia unconference. And what I loved about it was it was very exciting for me to hear, first of all, to have people in the room there that were from the design, for, for, to hear Nokia talk and recognize that, it, that they are more than just data. They are about people, and they actually are struggling with and recognizing some of the issues that we talk about here, that it's about the human interface and making the tools easier, and it really is about people connecting people. And their head designer, which one, they have two different, one is sort of their more research design with a capital D, and then Marco, who was one of the founders of Doppler, is now in charge of their interface design, and really to hear him He's so elegant in talking about the human side of a lot of this. So, yeah, they're the largest handset, and they have a lot of ways to go. But what I took away from, like, my last, the last sort of week was that this, that this human stuff is really resonating with people. I think people are fed up with wrestling with tools and without sort of the why and the where, you know? Yeah. Dave, does that does Oh, there, that there are a couple. You? There are. Uh, yeah. Well, no, I, I just... Uh, uh, as you as you were talking, Deb, I was thinking about s- stuff that actually whether anything had resonated with me in the last week, and I did come up with a couple. Sorry. Yeah, so share, share, share. Uh, well, PayPal. Um, yes. PayPal released a standard for micropayments. Um, I thought that was worthy of note. Um, and so you know, it'll enable people to sell digital content for ninety nine cents or whatever. Yeah, I so thought that was really like, interesting. The iTunesing of the web. Um, that 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 caught my interest. I didn't even know that happened. That's kind of big. Yeah, news. yeah, it was huge. They announced it at their developer conference a couple of days ago, yesterday or the day before, and I had seen actually their one of their presidents on some news show talking about it. And it's really, you know, they want to sort of, you know, why why leave it to Visa and you know, and all the other credit card companies? They want to really be your trusted micropayment agent. And I thought it's about time. Facebook's going to integrate it as well. That's a, that was another yep. part of the announcement. I, I thought so. that was brilliant. Uh, you know, of course, the PayPal mafia and the Facebook guys get together. But I think that, you know, if it makes, if it, you know, it'll be interesting to hear what happens to the, yeah. as a result of that, what happens to the. Um, Peter Thiel, by the way, is supposedly, I mean, not for real, but someone playing Peter Thiel's in the movie for two minutes. What? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, it's, it's a social network <laughs> movie. He was an early funder of, of uh, Angel for Facebook. And PayPal. Yes. He was part of the PayPal mafia. So, you know, the eco, I'm sort of down on the, on the ecosystem of like, you know, all the same companies get all the same refunding. So you sort of get, you know, you can get a homophily of thought about what's what the future is. Not that these guys aren't really smart and haven't had a mil- million hits, but... Um, 
and I'm sure both will be very successful and make their investors really happy. But if the if this micropayments thing actually enables us to do the stuff that we want to do, Heather, you know, like buy buy a a drink for someone in a bar when you're not there. Which yeah, I, these are this is one of the things, Dave, features I've been talking about and trying to get Naveen to build into Foursquare for a while. And this shows lots of different social actions people can do for each other that are inherently business-like. I could give you a virtual cookie while we're talking things that are relevant to having a live social space or helping people meet one another and buying drinks or for real. I mean, if I have friends that I see are in a bar across the country together and I want to buy one of them a drink, I can't very easily now. Yeah, and what does that do? What does the fact that PayPal's come out with this micropayments do to some of the startups like the Venmos and the other sort of text-based payment structures. I guess they just stomped all over them, right? I don't know. What do you think? Dave, any thoughts? Well, yeah. I mean, it, I guess it's kind of like uh, yeah. I remember, you know, uh, when Evan Williams was doing uh, 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 before Twitter and after Blogger, uh, Audio, which was uh, yep. audio kind of podcasting service. And, you know, Apple came out with iTunes. And, yeah, that, I think that's going to you know, when PayPal comes out with something, you know, that's related to payments, I think it is going to uh, have a similar effect for sure. Yeah, it will be interesting. I mean, I'm, I'm all for it because it's funny. We were talking about micropayments 20 years ago. It's fun how long it takes for this stuff to actually happen, doesn't it? <laughs> I'm yeah. serious. And, you know, yeah. I'm, I'm just, I think that's kind of cool. It's finally happening. It was discussed as the obvious way to pay for content on the web for a very long time, as though this would be an answer for musicians and for everything. And, uh, you know, and, and Myers, you know, is, is saying this is taking way too long. <laughs> Paying for Coke at a vending machine shouldn't be like using an effing jetpack. Yeah, if you're in Estonia today, <laughs> Estonia, yeah. You can use your phone and pay for the bus, but you can't do that in the U.S., which is kind of... Yeah. I mean, the U.S. is really behind. I mean, my, the example that always gives me this huge, like, aha is in Japan, you can just take your cell phone and, like, swipe it over a thing to pay for a cab ride, you know? I still get excited when I go to New York and I can pay with a credit card in a cab, you know? Right. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, my God. You know, wow. So uh, anything that moves that stuff along is great as long as it's hack-proof, which it won't be, but you know what I mean? Well, as long but, as they're good security so this this, this brings me to, like, I think where we should start transitioning yes. some with Dave. And, and here's here's how I want to do that, Dave. So just listen to how comfortable Deb is to say, oh, I, it would be great to have all this stuff moved along so it would speed it up. Um, you know, for her and maybe for the two of us and maybe for, you know, you guys listening, it's exciting. Wow, we could speed all this stuff up. The money will be in the air. It will be my phone. And I'll read about your personal life on on Facebook and all this stuff. There is a tremendous amount of anxiety about this stuff among most people that when you live as online as we do, you can, you can easily forget how anxious people are. And I think even, and you've done a lot, a tremendous amount of consulting, Dave. I mean, it seems to me even ever since the web started that a large part of especially consulting work we talked about with Christina Halverson a couple weeks ago here is just helping people get comfortable and that often what you're helping them get comfortable with isn't here's a tool, a piece of technology you can use. It's, do you trust other people? How do you work with other people in a more fluid way? And, and my sense from being at an early game storming um, workshop you did and from some of the tumbling stuff I've done is that we're both, you know, we're playing with ways to help things be fluid and experiential in a way that helps people really understand something as an experience. And I, it seems to me there's not, there's a big gap between people who are 
experientially used to this stuff and people who aren't, but see that it's a trend changing and they kind of feel like I have to understand the changing world, but they think of the changing world as websites that they don't know yet. Does that sound like an accurate take on the, the gap? The gap between whom? Between people Sorry. who live online and are comfortable with changing technologies and want these changes and what they mean socially and those who are afraid it will make us very inhuman, they'll be made obsolete like toys, toys in Toy Story 3 and we'll just have machines running everything. And, they'll, and the machines well, guess, won't care about us. Um, well, they're probably both right, aren't they? <laughs> have you seen Kevin Kelly or read Kevin Kelly's book about what technology wants or seen his TED talk about it? Yes. Well, why don't you tell, tell us about it? Well, I mean, he talks about technology uh, sort of um, as a as a whole, everything from uh, you know, uh, kind of stone axes through what we currently think of as technology. And you know, one of the things that he points out is that it it has its own uh, it has its own life. It has its own motion it's you know let's say we were to decide that you know the advance of technology uh is bad we we couldn't really stop it there's nothing we could do to stop it so um you know i think we you know people can say well it's bad you know i remember when i was a teenager in uh the i guess the 1970s you know playing video games in our in arcade and you know i remember my parents and others saying, "Well, you, you're just going to rot your brain. You're you're, you're not going to be a productive citizen. You're you're uh, you're wasting your time and you're you're rotting your brain." And you know, now what are people doing at work? But and how does it really look that different from what we were doing at, in the arcades in the 1970s, where you know we use something that's a lot like a trackball, you know, to move things around. We're coordinating activities on the screen um you know i think it's i think the you know it's it's fair to be concerned about technology and as we start to as we develop it we should be thinking about the dark side uh you know the 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 dehumanizing aspects of it but at the same time you know i think kevin kelly says it better than i could but you know we're not going to stop it you know, the the only way we could probably stop the advance of technology is, you know, to exterminate ourselves as a as a species. I don't think any there's any other way. Right. Well, the conference that was at a bar had a lot of this emphasis, and that's what David Rose and Kurtzwell were saying about the singularity, which I'm not sure I believe in this idea that machines will surpass us and kind of take what you won't be able to tell the difference between people and machines. Um, but the fact that it's moving relentlessly forward, I mean, we would like to think that, you know, tumbling exists is, is something worth talking about because it's something machines, it, it's about stuff machines can't do. They don't do context, really. They don't do meaning. They don't do emotion. Yeah. They don't They don't initiate conversations and keep them going through caring and let people feel that they're needed, all that stuff. And so what are ways we can help systems be designed around those abilities of people so that we're we're assuming these roles for folks i mean do you Dave, do you see you're very involved in the user experience community visual design community do you think these are things that people will be able to take into account in helping when they're designing platforms 
Yeah, I think it's the, I think it's you've put your finger on the thing that the user experience design community is really struggling with because yeah. context is so so fluid and and so constantly changing. Uh, how do you design for that? And you know, I think we're, what when I hear you guys talk about tumbling and um, you know, I think there's a lot of uh, a lot of improv in there. And oh yeah, very much. You know, Yep. It has a lot to do with the idea that you can't, you know, in a complex system, you know, like let's say a conversation among three or four people, which I would classify as a complex system, you can't really plan or design for it. You can, you can't, because you can't really anticipate, you know, how things are going to evolve. So you can plan, you know, so I think what a lot of user experience designers are doing are they're having to let go of this idea that they can design uh, things in the way that we maybe we traditionally design things, and we have to start designing things in the way that maybe architects uh, or or toy designers or other people have designed things in in the sense of designing spaces and things that are kind of enabling for other things to happen as opposed to an end in themselves. Yeah, you know, like, I, a, bu- yeah, like a building. A, a building yeah. is a is a space that enables right. all kinds of things to happen in it and you can design to make certain kinds of things easier and other kinds of things more difficult and um, I think that's what user experience designers are starting to figure out as well we you know and I mean Twitter is a great example of of a technology that let it kind of created a big empty room and let the users come and, and start to define what it was right I mean for me I use like well, performance a sense of live performance is the, is the model for me creating uh, and, and and improv and directing and casting and, and set design even more than just a building uh, are part of the metaphor that works for me because I see your experience of the web as being, especially in real time on Twitter, like live performance space. And I, I think you can, you know, from my experience, create conditions that will help some things be more likely to happen, uh, which, is a, which is even a little bit, and I think the architecture is part of that, but I think if we think in terms of buildings, it's a little too static. To me, it's not as warm. That's why I care about the tumbling piece. It's like you need the buildings, but you need someone hosting the party or helping direct the, the play or the improv inside of it. Yeah, uh, this is sort of yeah, this is sort of when we had Christian Kremlish on, and he talks about his pattern language. I think it, I love that metaphor. I mean, it's a good start for the metaphor. I know you think buildings are cold, but it's a very different way for a UX designer, and I specifically like US UX instead of. SXD, you know, a user experience designer should start thinking about, wow, we can't design the entire system. We're going to design the, the cup, the shell, the building, and enable people to sort of jump in and do what they want. And I think, you know, social interaction designers need to start, which is sort of what a lot of the systems that we're designing today are about in this space, need to even take it a step further, right? Understand what are, you know, they need to be better ethnographers around this stuff, right? I mean, it's a very different way of, of of thinking about that empty space, right? It, it's a building, yes, but but how do you make a building so that people want to gather there? And it, it's sort of maybe an architect combined with an interior designer, if I wanted to take your metaphor to the extreme, right? So the architect designs the actual floors and spaces in the building, but the interior designer gives it the warmth and puts the seats there and the fabric and maybe a carpet. And so I don't know if that metaphor holds for you, David. It... it it, you know, we've talked about a lot about that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's. I think it's very easy for 
a very well-intentioned architect or designer to, um, in an attempt to be helpful, to create a lot of obstacles. I mean, just look at the Microsoft operating system and how helpful over the years it's tried to be. And, you know, nine times out of ten, uh, it seems that it's, it's actually, in its attempt to be helpful, it's, it's really intruding. Um, and, you know, I I've, can't tell you how many times I've gone into um, uh, facilitate a meeting in a, and I walk into a, a conference room and someone has tried to make it, you know, tried to be helpful by making it more high tech. So there's a screens and interactive whiteboards and, you know, all kinds of crap when actually a, a regular whiteboard or you know, mm-hmm. a wall that you could actually tack some paper up on or put some sticky notes on would actually be much more, you know, a, a room that had less intentional design and was less, had less assumptions of what people needed to do when they got it, or fewer, sorry, fewer assumptions of what people needed to do when they got into a conference room would actually be better. Um, because uh, whenever you design, you know, something into a space, you know, and you're trying to anticipate what people are doing and you're wrong, um, you yeah. know, you're going to, you're going to cause more problems than you're going to help. And, and, and the fact is that work is changing to the degree. I mean, think about all the workspaces that, um, are, are, um, people are tripping over cords all the time because they were designed before people had, you know, 20 or 30 things they needed to bring in and plug in. Uh, or, I mean, it's just, over and over and over it happens that, you know, people think, oh, well, we'll design a room for this because we know what people are going to do in the room. They're almost always wrong. <laughs> right. And that's, that's true. And also, I think one of the things that I talk about and I'm presenting that I think is really similar to what you're saying about the room with using a lot of technology to try to help people in the room get together. Often now a lot of conferences will throw a live Twitter feed up in the back of <laughs> of the stage, for example, because they'll think, oh, we want to have other people involved. They're used to interactivity, so let's plop that thing right here. It, it's kind of just as thoughtless because the intention mm-hmm. of having everybody engage seems like the right one. We're used to engaging with each other with more of us online. Can't we have that live? But it, you can learn that as a human skill, or at least that's what I try to teach. And I think, Although- I think David, just wanted to say one last thing, which is, don't you feel they're sometimes putting the technology in the room because there's sort of a magical belief that it will do things for you that it doesn't always do that it that that you're that they don't they they people confuse what they're doing through technology as as being the technology itself. Uh, yeah, I couldn't have said I couldn't say it better than you just did. Dave, how do you know, you know, in thinking through what you were just talking about, is like how, as UX designers or, you know, whether designed for two screens or, or multiple, because I know you more, know where the balance is, whether you're over-designing or under-designing. You know, is it an, is it an innate skill? Does it come through just doing it a lot? Because, like you said, well, if it, uh, you know? I mean, just the idea that, you know, we're talking about, you know, we're talking about a lot more than screens these days. That's part of the challenge that people are are dealing with. You know that the uh, you know the the internet and the the the, uh, the chip, the chip and the networking between the chips is getting embedded in smaller and smaller devices. I mean, to where um, I'd be surprised if there wasn't. You know, almost every kind of device we know that is in some way smart these days 
and more and more so. So when you've got, it's not just you're designing for an iPhone or a, or a laptop. You, you might be designing for the blender and the, uh, and the, uh, the vacuum cleaner and the can opener. So, you right. know, it's, there's no, it's not even that necessarily they're always going to be screens anymore. So what, you know, what are the implications when, let's say, the, you know, the can opener, you know, <laughs> can, talk uh, to can, the, right. can talk to the cans or, you know. And, hey, uh, hey, I just read an article <laughs> right before we got on that, that freaked me out in a, in, a, in a weird way that there's now um, mobile networks with people-born sensors. So everyone could walk around with sensors and create mobile mesh Wi-Fi networks. Well, yeah. Oh, actually, wow. So, I mean, so we the are, per- are in a way, right? right? The phones right. are, you know, the, there's enough people around with phones. We probably don't need the phone company. Right, exactly. That's, <laughs> yeah. the, that's right. That's the point, right? I had a really interesting conversation with a guy who works for a Visa's innovation team in Canada called Todd Purvis, who does a lot of speaking about about mobile, incredibly smart. I recommend following him on Twitter, P-U-R-V-I-S. And he was making this, this argument like that, that essentially once people figure out that we're being charged enormous amounts of money for what's costing them nothing. Right. Uh, that, you know, and trying, but that they're used to kind of getting governments are used to getting this big chunk of money out of the, out of the phone companies when they sell them spectrum that essentially we publicly own anyway. And I was saying, well, isn't it possible these companies could try to take a micropayment chunk, like a little mini payment out of everything that happens? Because, mm-hmm. it, because it is, I mean, do you think Dave will end up at some point not having to pay for the, the enormous amounts we're paying for connectivity and phone service? I uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I, 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 I'm not investing in any mobile phone, uh, you know, phone companies these days. I mean, they, you know, the, the, uh, um, I, I believe that, um, I mean, look at what Skype, you know, look at mm-hmm. how the, the mobile phone carriers have, have dealt with Skype. I mean, right. they, uh, you know, I'm sure they lost a tremendous volume of of international calling traffic. I mean, the people who are actually paying the larger, uh, the, the greater fees for their phone bills are now and over the Internet, right? there. Well, right. okay. I don't have to be able to do it from wherever I'm going to be. I can go home and get on a, a laptop and have that conversation with my mom in India. Or Great, on your phone. You know, or, but with your, or with your phone, Skype on your phone. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, you don't even have to go home. You know, it, 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 it's, it's interesting, Heather, you were talking about the, the, you know, people showing up in a room and everyone just thinking that this stuff happens, sort of whether it's a 2D screen that's being designed like Dave's talking about. For the first time ever, I went to a conference last week that I spoke at, which they had the role of the conference. It was the Pivot Conference. And the woman who was executive producing it was Chris Shipley, who does the demo conferences, or did, and still produces them. And she herself is a Tumblr. And she actually organized the conference in such a brilliant way, I thought, that she had catalysts. They weren't moderators. They were catalysts. So I was asked to be a catalyst, a.k.a. a Tumblr. And I have four... Oh, right, exactly. Which <laughs> did you have a rename than Tumblers? Yeah, I I actually told the room. I talked about tumbling in the room, you know, and then I said, AKA Catalyst. And the way that she, it was really fascinating that I think a lot of people, if if the person who was the catalyst looked at looked at their at their role as a tumbler as opposed to a moderator, 
the entire session sort of had a very different feel to it. So, and, and it was really interesting to see how, so basically what it has, the catalyst started the conversation and framed what was going to happen, introduced each person who spoke for about five or 10 minutes. And, you know, and of course, I was doing the tumbling, so it was much more personal and human and gave a little kind of jokes about it. Then afterwards, sort of summarize what that person just said and how it comes to the next person. And then at the end, everyone sat on the stage together and we took questions from the audience. And I actually thought it was a really, really smart way to go about doing it because it it was small snippets of, of, of information threaded together by a human, right? right, not, right. By, not, so- by, not by a schedule, you know, but by a human. And I, I would hope more events, you know, and conferences do that. But I, in, in, I'm, not so, I'm not bringing it up to talk about the conference in the sense that I was, in doing this, I was like, how could we design two-dimensional systems, all these social media systems that were designed today, to do that, right? So what, Dave, what do, you, what do you think? You're a designer. I mean, do right. you, we, we want more space for the, to be the human host. Do you see that these designers being open to design for, for an actor in a weird way or a host. Yeah. Yeah. I think so. I mean, I think that, uh, you know, what, I mean, I, I can't, I don't think it's, I can be asked to speak for all designers in this any more than I can speak for all tall people. But you're, all, I am not saying you're, Oh, fine. Your, you, your, your opinion on whether or not you think design can adapt this way. I think almost, I mean, I think almost all, most designers have come to the conclusion that they can't design in an ivory tower anymore, that they can't, um, you know, there has been a, a history in design of people, you know, saying, well, I'm the designer, you know, you give me the problem, I solve it, I give you the solution, you take it or you leave it. That's Frank Lloyd Wright style, right? You know, and right. in fact, he had a special mark that he put on buildings when the client didn't give him any feedback. Basically, I did not know that. It was a special red tile when you accepted his design without squawking, uh, you know, and uh, you got a special red tile in your building, yeah, somewhere. But you know, it's like so that's that's a kind of some to some level a tradition of of design, and I think designers are becoming more and more and more aware that design is not something that you know is you know can be done in an ivory tower that it has to be connected to um, society in a deeper way, and, and that designers don't know necessarily as much um, as, uh, in some ways, as the people who are going to be using the stuff that they design. So they they try and I think there's more and more people doing uh, ethnographic uh, research. And I'm, that's probably I, I broke the business buzzword rule uh, uh, there. Uh, but, everyone drink. You know, Everyone drink. Okay. You know, there, there are people who, you know, they're, they're, they're going out into the communities that they're designing for. They're spending time there. Um, I talked to a guy at Microsoft a few years ago that is going out to uh, uh, third world countries. Uh, that's probably a, another bu- buzzword. Developing, developing countries. Developing countries, yeah. All right, developing uh, nations. And, uh, you know, giving people foam uh, components like keyboards in different parts of a computer and they they go into uh, the home and they say hey you know here are all the, the Lego blocks for lack of a better word why don't you design me the computer that you want and show me how you would use it and why you would use it that way and um, you know there's more and more of that happening and I think it's you know 
because uh, designers have designed some disasters. I mean, uh, I guess Mies van der Rohe maybe and, and modernist <laughs> architecture might be the – I keep coming back to architects today for some reason. But, uh, you know, the whole modernist uh, idea was, well, we'll design the – you know, what do you call it? A house is a machine for living in. That was, that was wow. Mies van der Rohe. So, like, we'll design these these perfect uh, homes, and the people will just conform their lives to fit our perfect designs, and they're they're they will live more in the way that they should live. We'll pack them in more densely, and so forth. And it's like the you know that's the I think designers have had some dramatic failures like that, mm-hmm. and um, uh, I think that they have have gained a little bit of humility, plus the fact that you've got. Now, so many different aspects that involve that are involved in a design. You're not just designing the shape of an object and how it feels in the hand. You're designing how it connects to the internet and what you know what actually information it might share on the internet or that it might want to share with other devices. And so you have software coding that's involved. You have interface design of actually where are the buttons and what do they do. You have how does it feel in the hand? What is it made of? Um, there are so many variables in, in the things that we're designing for now that uh, it takes uh, it really takes a team to even be able to have the expertise to understand all those you know, components. It's really interesting. One of the major critiques people were leveling at Kurzweil and they thought David Rose at this conference, academics, were that they were um, you know, they were they were supporting machinery over people and they were sort of inhuman, but they themselves seem to kind of fall into a somebody watches the picture and has an idea of how things work analysis of stuff. And, and, and even just the act of philosophy, which they seemed to feel was very important, and they were there in the name of the Hana Arendt Center. I learned a little bit about Hana Arendt, but I'm sure someone else here knows more than I do, is that they, I don't know how focused on actual action they were. And I, what I hear you saying, Dave, is that you think design is moving in a direction where people don't think they can be distant from the act of use or it needs to be more in the hands. It's more about empowering other people to create their own ways of, of using stuff and who will know stuff best. And I, I got that same sense from a, a futurist, a guy who's called, I think, Changist. I saw at a OCAD in Toronto not long ago who was saying the same thing about futurism, that there's a lot more let's make stuff and iterate it and see what comes out of that. So out of a real experience as opposed to an idea, I know for me, art, uh, all comes out of a sense of making, and I felt very, uh, I felt like it was very important to do real emotion in the room, which is what I do performatively, like with all these people talking abstractly about the difference between people and machines, but not a lot of doing the humanness, you know? Well, I also think they do this, they, I mean, at academic conferences at least, don't they tend to do, the, it sounded like they tended to do the machine or human. You know, it's not binary. It's a combination. It's it's not an either or. Oh, I there mean, was somebody who was uh, Jane Bennett from Hopkins who was very focused on systemic thinking and mm-hmm. trying to see everything was merged together. And 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 uh, Myers here is saying it's our, you know this critique of uh, past design and architecture Dave, that you're discussing, saying it's kind of artist ego, and you can see that even in Steve yeah. Jobs, sort of I know how it should be for you, and. Uh, you know, yeah, we, right. Steve Jobs is uh, his. He's. I got a real bone to pick with him when he took away. Yeah. He took away the pen and decided that we're going to all now sketch with our fingertips. Yeah. Those of us who want to sketch, that's the reason I'm on a PC tonight. 
Because you have a you, – you, you still use the, the, the – whatchamacallit, the stylus? Yeah, well, I have a desire to do, to do things, you know, uh, in a similar way that you do them on, with a pen and paper. And, I mean, there's yep. a reason we don't go around with bottles of ink, you know, dipping our fingers in <laughs> ink whenever we want to write somebody a note or, you know, draw a map. Wow, I hadn't realized until you just said that, Dave, how much I actually do really miss the – I mean, I sketch on paper, but you're right. I miss that being able to do that on on a screen. Uh, damn Steve Jobs. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a really good point. But do, but do you think you need a benevolent? Is, don't you sometimes need a benevolent dictator? Is, or Dave, is he? Is this a is this a weakness for Apple in in the kind of growth of what they're doing? I don't know. Actually, it's probably a strength because I'm a I'm a minority. I'm not yeah. really an important customer to them. Uh, you know, I think that. They, if you look at the uh, the trend and you kind of extrapolate it, it's, it's very clear to me, although I have had a lot of Mac users argue with me about this, but it's very clear to me, I believe, that uh, Apple is focusing on the consumer, not the creator. And most, you know, the iPad is like a newspaper, uh, you know. They used to be, you know, you're right, 15 you know, the years The iPhone ago. is a device. They used to, they used to have a, a tradition and they used to yes. have a, 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 a sort of a stated goal that they were supporting creative people. And I think as, as you look at what they're doing with the devices and so forth, they're really more, much more about consuming information. Apple TV, the iPod, um, you know, you can't take, it's not that easy to get on an iPod and create something. Um, so I, I, you know, I, I'm sure I'll get some argument about that. But um. as an Apple fangirl, I actually completely agree with you. I mean, they used to be a lot more about the creatives, and and they've become much more about consumers and maybe um, uh, not creators, but as the democratization of the tools. I mean, you can mash things up and push things together. I mean, what got me into the Mac back in the day was it enabled me to be a designer in a way that I was not, you know, a graphic designer because I was never trained, but they gave me these tools that enabled me to be this, you know, uh, you know, use that muscle. And, and much less so today. I agree with you. It is much less so about creating new stuff because, let's face it, iMovie and, and a lot of their other stuff is really too hard to use almost. Um, so so I, th- I think they've migrated, Dave. I think you're right. They've changed. I, I, I would not disagree with that. It's made them very successful, but I well, think they've changed. to some degree, they were able to do it because they became more successful. So they had enough people using their – enough people created for their platform that now there are people buying it, so they don't need to focus on just the makers. Um, but, Dave, in the time we, that we have left, um, I'd love to hear a little bit more about – maybe you want to talk a little bit more about game storming why you decided to focus on uh, collecting games that people can play uh, in the workplace to help make stuff happen. Uh, because ga- anything that's game-like or improvisational or, uh, you know, the kind of tumbling stuff I think is like this is more playful uh, and I think more experiential than the ways I think business is being used to be carried out, this kind of rational, let me t- give you information, I'm in charge, listen to me. I have the answers. Let me tell them to you. Approach. Do, do yeah. I have that that right? Well, I you know you talk about a gap. Um, I can't remember what you were talking about. The gap between you know the the people who embrace technology and the people who uh, are are worried about technology. And I think I noticed I was doing a, a lot of uh, 
management consulting, business consulting, helping people, you know, um, think through their strategies and also um, execute by helping them communicate better. And mm-hmm. I noticed, you know, we have, of course, customers at all stages of that technology spectrum. We had clients who were, uh, you know, in, in a very, very traditional industries that were more formal and had kind of almost ritualized the way that they do their business. And we had clients that were, you know, in the, uh, you know, cutting edge of technology. And I noticed a big gap between how they were doing, how the, how different companies were doing their work. And uh, I felt that, you know, looking at the way that some of these um, cutting edge technology companies were doing their work, there was a lot to be learned from that and a lot that, you know, uh, it was, you know, like looking at the future, what the future was going to look like for some of these other companies. Mm-hmm. And um, I felt that um, there was a need for a way to kind of go out and collect all these, you know, the, these things that uh, I and my co-authors saw happening out there in the world. That some of the more innovative you know, really smart, you know, forward-thinking companies were doing. And um, so we went out uh, kind of like the Brothers Grimm went out in the German countryside looking mm-hmm. for fairy tales. You know, we went out looking for something maybe a little more concrete and useful than fairy tales. But, you know, some of these things were captured. Some of these things were very well described on the Internet or in books. Uh, but there was no place that kind of collected them all in one place and made them accessible to people who may not be familiar with, you know, uh, the language or the technologies associated with them or whatever. So, you know, really, this is a this is a basically a, a Brothers Grimm collection of best practices for um, high performance collaboration. And you know, I say high performance because I think there's a lot of in, in the business world. There's a lot of talk about um, conflict and negotiation and cooperation and I think these are these are uh, teams that are dysfunctional that are working on this stuff. I mean, people are with their um, you know you, you can you can cooperate without being a high performance team. I mean, you know, cooperation or collaboration, you know, that doesn't win you the championship. It's it's really being um, and the people out there and the teams that I see out there that are actually winning the championship, you know, equivalent of work. You know, they've got the, the mm-hmm. great new products, the great services. They aren't just getting over conflict. I mean, they aren't just learning to get along, you know, uh, peacefully. They're, they're actually uh, collaborating and co-creating in really amazing ways. And so, you know, if if people are looking for a book that's going to help them, you know, get get out of a, you know, passive aggressive or you know you know really dysfunctional situation at work i don't think game storming is the book for them game storming is is the book for people who are who are already actually getting along and want to do great work i love that well the thing is is then you have to figure out (laughs) for a lot of people have to figure out how to how to get along i mean yeah the things that i find in working people is i think that the emotional change is the hardest part for people. I mean, do you find that that's something you end up working with, Dave, or are you only feeling like, hey, this stuff will help you because I already have it together emotionally so that you're free enough to to go into this kind of new collaborative way of, of approaching stuff? 
I because think you it's have fun. to feel, yeah, I mean, you have to feel more secure, right, to do it. If you're full of tell me what to do or did I do anything wrong, you can't innovate or come up with anything new. Yeah, I, there. I mean, you know, there are organizational cultures that that are all across the range, from paranoia to, you know, um, you know, to, uh, you know, evil dictatorship to benevolent dictatorship and everything, you know, to bureaucratic nightmare, you know, to, you know, cubicle hell, you know. I think we all have aspects of our work that we probably would change. And I think the the key for what, what what's I guess to me what's what was interesting is to say there's actually a lot of great stuff out there, and Silicon Valley in a lot of ways is the center of it. So you guys are probably just living it and breathing it every day. And maybe it took someone like me, who was a little bit of an outsider, to come in and say there's a lot of value here that can be shared for with the rest of the world. Um, look at all the people in the Bay Area who are literally um, doing all kinds of work before they even get paid for it. Yep. Um, they're well, it, they're it's, co- co- it's connecting a, and... Yeah, it, it's a given. And I don't know how much right. time you spent in New York, Dave, but one of the things I find when I'm asked, I'm asked to speak there, especially in media and entertainment, is people resist making stuff because they don't want to start until they're paid and they don't want to start until there's a clear business model so they can make money. And if that's not clear to them, then they shouldn't do it. Well, that's yeah, the difference. Yeah. <laughs> and, the- and that's the difference you see, right? Okay, sorry, Deb, you were about to say the same thing, probably. No, I was going to say it's the difference between bonding or connecting over an idea and a passion, and uh, of something, whether it's new technology or a new idea, versus leveraging existing um, markets, for want of a better word, to do stuff. So if you're, I mean, I'm assuming that there are people in New York who do that, maybe not as much in the business world, more in the arts. So, um, but in the Valley, there's sort of a um, conflation of the two, right? Ideas, art, and and something new. How do you you get people comfortable with this idea that, they're not getting paid all the time. They should just make stuff. And that and that payment, eventually the money comes out of that stuff. I mean, I know I do these presenting workshops that I now have a lot of demand for because people are used to conversations online. And they're like, why should I listen to you talk at me when you could email me the same information, you know, rather than stay in front of the room and giving me data? Well, that came from me doing performance art. That's how I learned and figured out how to do that stuff. It wasn't exactly like a high uh, social status thing to do or anything that people would have thought would have, would ever lead to money. Mm-hmm. But it has, and I think it will continue to, and they, they work together. I mean, you're a painter. How often does your painting and your artwork lead to things that you end up using with Fortune 50 consultants, Fortune 50 com- companies? Yeah, well, you're, you're talking about the aspects of, of you know, the, the characteristics of creative work, and right. I think what... Um, a lot of people are still trying to come to grips with is the the idea that, you know, more and more work is by its nature needing to be creative. You you know, if you're designing a new product or you're designing software or you're developing, you know, you're, you're developing the next thing that's going to kill the iPhone or whatever. um, You don't, when you start a project like that, you can't, you can't possibly know where it's going to end up. If you if you knew if you knew the result before you started to design, it wouldn't be innovation. You wouldn't be creating anything unique or new. Um, this is the problem that Sony had when they, you know, 
as they were thinking about the next generation of the Walkman, they just didn't see uh, Steve Jobs coming, did they? Um, because they were looking at design as an incremental improvement thing instead of a rethinking it kind of a thing, um, starting from scratch. So the fact that you know more and more work is needing to be creative means that a lot of these practices that you know have existed in you know long-standing creative communities um, are going to be needed are going to need to be adopted more and more in the workplace. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that business, it's one of the reasons I focus on business so much is it needs art the most. It needs it. And that's where we spend all our time. And it also, to me, just comedically is so juicy because it's so full of uptightness and resistance. And yet, I don't see how it'll function by continuing to behave that way. Well, that's well, why. Go ahead, Dave. Deb, sorry. No, go ahead, Dave. <laughs> Dave, go ahead. I'm kind of in my, my rant mode here. Yeah, do it. Uh, well, you know, uh, before we leave the subject completely of New York, uh, area versus the Bay Area, and I know I'm going to piss people off when I say this. Um, the from a business perspective, the people who built New York, who the creative people who made New York, are all dead, long dead. <laughs> um, the people who built the Bay Area, the people who uh, made Silicon Valley, from a business perspective, are still in the prime in many cases of their business careers. I mean, they're, they're still there. They're still participating. They're still actively a part of it. So there's a very big difference to me in the, in the business world between the, the creative um, spirit that's in the air in the Silicon Valley versus the creative spirit that's in the air in New York. And I think, Heather, you know, the way you described it, I think is, is you know, maybe it's not fair to everyone, but it's certainly al aligned with my perspective on it. My experience. I, mean, I know that, uh, you know, Anil Dash and Chris, Chris um, Dixon. Dixon have blogged a lot about this, and so has, uh, uh, what's his name, a VC, you know who I'm thinking of, Fred Wilson, uh, yeah. about, about the growing startup scene in New York. But somebody, and I wish I could remember who it was, it was Clive Thompson, said to me, yeah, all of those people already made their money. So they already have huge successes. There's not a big risk to invest in them, and it's easier for them to be in New York. If you really don't have a lot of money, it's hard to be in New York. And Patty Smith, just this year, I'll find the link somewhere. Maybe Andrew can throw it up for us. Uh, you know, in an interview she was doing, said, you know, young artists don't come to New York. I'm just, I've just left New York myself. I'm on a road trip to, to uh, New Orleans, and I think I'm going to probably be based in Toronto for a while, as well as the Bay Area. And I'm mean, very mobile because I travel a lot. But I think there's something to me about there's a lot that's wonderful, especially as a performer in New York. But I think it's just a symbol for to me for an approach to business, an approach to life that says what you're saying, Dave, that I, I can't handle this, this period of time where I don't know what's going on. We don't want that. We need to understand how it works. And then I'm going to navigate that world and have success within it. Deb, New Yorker. You want to tell me how I'm wrong? Uh, no, I, I, I mean, I agree. I just actually gave, um, the reason I was jumping in before was I, I gave an interview on this subject, the difference between the alley and the valley. I'm always asked this question, and uh, hopefully it'll show up in the journal soon. I, I can't get past, you know, when you ask me this, I, I piss off both of my communities. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> well, I do it all the time. You know, I, I, when, I, I've pissed off both, and I think that, that uh, I, there's value to both. Um, ideas writ large in New York, they, there's nothing wrong with making money and having business. And New York tends to take ideas and, 
and grow them and figure out how to make money around them for better or worse. I, I definitely have always been more, uh, have more of an affinity to the artistic creative communities in New York, therefore the Bay Area, but new ideas drive the technology scene in Silicon Valley. New adopting technology in interesting ways and bringing it to larger um, audiences and users is something New York does really well. New York gets media and storytelling and the arts in lots of ways. In this new landscape that we're living in, New Yorkers, overly simplified, are going to have to learn to, to break through some of these silos. I mean, I talk to business people all the time about this stuff, and I love how you put it, Dave. The best practices of artistic communities are what's needed today it, to make, you know, everything, you know, to, to innovate and be creative, you need to take risks and, and think outside the box. And the only real risk takers, in quotes, in the New York scene were the day traders or the banking traders. And they're risking. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're creative, you know, aren't they? <laughs> they're not, they're, they're risking, they're, they're risking, but they're not innovating. And they're, if they're innovating, they're creative with other people's money. So <laughs> they're not creating new ideas. They're creating new, you know, monetary instruments with other people's stuff. I mean, you could argue that that's creative and innovative in some sense, but it's not a new idea. And it, look how, look where it got us, right? An implosion of a market. So that softer side of what makes us creative, I think, is is the future. And there are pockets of people doing it. I, I totally agree with Clive's point that the people who have the luxury to talk about being artistic in, um, you know, in the New York startup scene are ones who don't have big risk and already have houses and mortgages. It's expensive to live in New York. It's it's sad to me that, forget the tech scene, it's sad to me that New York, the island of Manhattan, has become an upper middle class, you know, moat. <laughs> You know, uh, it's just not what it used to be. So that's my rant. I, I agree that, so, but I do think there is, there's something to be said for what New York can do. So I think so they Dave, t- together. Dave Richard Florida writes a lot about creative class. But, yes. Yes. So, what, so we're going to talk about designing community, whether it's inside, uh, you know, space for community to happen for gamestorming or for more creative practices work or in the city. Uh, what, you know, what is it that we want? Because New York has a lot that's great. It has incredible diversity. It has great food. It has incredible performing arts. I mean, the Bay Area's performing arts scene is absolutely substandard compared to, to New York's, which is, which is really fantastic. But it is very difficult to get time and space to do really innovative stuff. I had a really, the most thrilling experience I had um, in the last couple of weeks or last while was at Bard. I met uh, a woman named Lee Cox who's part of Bill T. Jones. Arnie Zane Dance Company, and just really hit it off around the interactive performance uh, work that I'm doing and was able to collaborate with her some and, and apply some of the stuff I've been doing, with, you know, with scaling things in the room and emotional connection to a dance performance, which was thrilling. And uh, she said, no, I couldn't have done worked on this piece in New York. I wouldn't have had space to do it. And that one of the things I found was some of the kind of stuff I'm trying to develop you know, for me to get four minutes at a, at a stand-up place where I have to deliver a certain tone, a certain tempo that I'm selling, makes it tough for me to do something as new. I mean, there are spaces that, that do new work in New York and amazing artists because you want to go be with the other artists. But it, I don't know. I one, Do you think, I mean, that we said the Internet's going to enable you to start your startup anywhere? I mean, you're in St. Louis. How many people, how much of this innovation, Dave, is going to leave these centers? I mean, how much of these, are these practices are going to show up in other places of living? What can we do to make that happen? 
Yeah, well, I mean, as you know, you need a spark. I mean, you need you need some initial piece of energy to get a fire going. And uh, I think it's the same with groups and teams. And certainly, uh, you know, I think you've, one of the reasons that uh, Silicon Valley is doing so well is because there's already a density. There's a sun uh, worth of energy raging there. And, you know, people want to be close to the warmth. And so um, wherever they are... Um, it's probably, in, in a lot of cases, it's easier for them to go, you know, move to Silicon Valley or connect to, with Silicon Valley in some way than to try and get that spark going for themselves. But what, you know, what I believe and the whole purpose behind game storming is to open the, um, is to give people that tinder or the, the matches that they need to get that spark going wherever they might be. So to, you know, in the, uh, in the days of the hunter-gatherers, we had to carry the fire around, and in order to get fire from one tribe to another, we had to run a, you know, light a torch and, and take it somewhere. And maybe that's where we are today in terms of that energy at work. You know, um, we've got it going in Silicon Valley. We've got a bonfire raging or, or whatever. Uh, but uh, game storming is intended to be kind of like one of those torches. You know, take some of that, that energy and that fire and bring it to the rest of the world where people really need it, you know. And, and I think a lot of the people in Silicon Valley are focusing on making that fire run better and hotter. And, and, you know, that's great too. But let's share a little bit of that stuff and let's write it down. <laughs> let's put it in a form that's going to be useful to people elsewhere. Agreed. <laughs> Sorry, I just... Jeffrey Zeldin is saying, uh, you know, Deb's Yeah, got, what's, he, what's he picking on us about? Yeah, I was, I was, I was, I've been tweeting out some of the stuff you're saying about, oh, um, New York? about how business, the business risk takers in New York are day traders. And that there's just oh, not- okay. That, you know, okay. So if Zeldman's listening, I will say, I see, I knew he was going to piss off. Some- but uh, this okay. is something other people might say. So what, would you, what do you say to that? Well, what I say to that is it was a one-liner that sounded good, that, that only the day traders are risk-takers. I think there are a lot of risk-takers in New York. They, they, they risk in different ways than um, people in, in the Valley. I think, I think New York is changing, and I haven't lived there in five years, but in the tech scene in New York at least, it, it is more expensive to get things done, and money does take at, there is not the same ecosystem of sharing and doing stuff together at the same level. I'm seeing it start now. And when I say now, I would say in the last three years, I'm starting to see co-working and workspaces and people sort of teaming up for projects as opposed to let's get some paperwork and do a startup. I do see more fluidity in New York these days, but it is much more ingrained in the Valley than it is in New York. By the way, the downside of that long-term ecosystem that you just talked about, Dave, in Silicon Valley is the fact that there's a bit of an echo chamber. There's a bit of a um, homophily of, wow, you had that great startup 20 years ago, so I'll keep talking to you. So I do think that people can rest on their laurels a little bit too long in, in the Valley. Just because you had one great idea doesn't mean you're going to have 10 great ideas. Oh, totally. There's also a lot of lazy salespeople in the Valley. Yeah, and the other because all the they other, have is the Rolodex that they don't actually ever sell anything. Well, in New York, you know, in the Valley, it's what have you what have you done? And the joke is that in New York, it's what have you done lately? Um, uh, so that's the old joke. I, I do think that what I what I do think that the East Coast has is a, is a 
is a grounding and a basis in reality, and they don't focus on tech for tech's sake, which if I wanted to get down on the valley, you know, focusing on the new weird API, that you know, shiny object syndrome in the valley is all over the place. So I don't see, you know, if I wanted to look at the valley in the last three years, I don't see as much grand technology innovation. I see a lot of repeats and recreating of old stuff, truthfully. Um, if I wanted to get down on the valley, I could too. So that would be a whole show I could do for an hour picking <laughs> on both coasts. Um, but I, I won't go into that. So, you know, Heather, I guess my <laughs> Even res- though you just did. You just did fine. <laughs> too late. Deb, Debs has this awesome uh, way of speaking where she'll say, well, we could talk about, and then talks about it. <laughs> I do the same thing as though we didn't talk about it. We just did. Uh, that's our silliness. Hey, Diego. Then Vegas, thanks for joining us. I, I would love to know what Zeldman thinks I'm being offensive about, but he can tweet back at me. Oh, I'm inviting him to join us. He's saying, and I, I asked him, I'd love to know, right? It's, I tweeted something out from you that, that you think the real risk takers in, in New York have been people like day traders. Like that's been, there hasn't been real business risk. And, you know, he's disagreeing with that. Uh, I'm just fine. You know, I'm like, great, come on and, and let us know. I want to know who says it. Come tell us who's taking the risk. I mean, it's not like nobody. And Barry Saunders also told me that it's not a zero-sum game. They're they're both they're doing both, and I agree. Um, I I don't think that the world we live in today is not as much of a zero-sum game, and I'd like to think that both coasts are learning that a little bit better. And you know, these are grand generalizations that we make, which I think is just a shit. You know what, Deb? I think it's okay to take a stand, and like if people like it, it's fine. I mean, that's part of what makes something interesting. I I also wow, Diego Van Vegas, Van Vegas. You know, I want to name you Van Vegas. Good night in Columbia. I love having listeners from everywhere. It's the web is awesome. And the truth is, who lives? I mean, I'm on the East Coast right now, and I feel as connected to you two as anybody I know. And you're in totally different time zones and places. And I yeah. feel like we live in the same space. And I guess, Dave, that's what I meant by the gap, which is folks for whom fluidity is more of a norm. And especially, as Clive pointed out to me, if you have more control over the way you work and how you live, it changes the choices you make around your transport, around how you see everything. And some folks, you know, are, I got to live here. I'm in this house. I got to go to this, you know, office park, nine to five. I got to get this car in traffic. And it changes your sense of how any of these tools or ways of operating could work for you. Yeah, I mean, well, every, I mean, every city has its, has its uh, great things, its beautiful things, its, its, structural issues i mean <clears throat> i don't mean to pick on new york oh let's pick on new york they can take it they're, they're sad <laughs> but, but what i'm saying is do you think that there's a mindset of being used to living fluidly that really can work for everyone or do you have to do the kinds of work people like you know that the three of us do in order to make use of these ways of working and being creative uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I think, uh, people can, uh, people can choose a flu, you know, more or less fluid lifestyle. I think New York is a very expensive city to live in. Um, it's more, it's more structured. People have to right. plan their day a little bit more. Uh, they have to plan on when they're going to be in the subway and people have their, you know, routines and. No, what you need you to know. plan when you live in New York, the subway is awesome. 
Compared to San Francisco, the public transportation system rocks. What people who don't live in New York don't understand is that when you leave your house in the morning in New York, you must carry everything with you on your back all day. From the morning, they, from the minute you wake up until the end of the day. And that's what we plan as New Yorkers. Okay, if I'm going out after work, how much am I carrying on my back? If you're a girl, do I have to get dressed up afterwards? I'm, I'm giving you, I'm just giving, I'm just teasing you. But that's the thing that leaving New York, it really dawned on me is, wow, we carry everything on our backs with us all the time in ways that well, people I, in other I, cities don't. I think a lot of people in San Francisco do the same. And, uh, but I think the there is still, uh, I, you know, yeah, maybe. So, You're right. You know, but I think, uh, but I think that um, they, uh, what I've noticed is that, uh, at least maybe just the people that I know, um, but uh, people have more open space in their day in the Bay Area. They tend to have a little bit more flexibility. They Maybe yes. they just build it in. Um, you know, they, I mean, it's not, I don't think it's to do with how much they have to carry on their back, but Maybe they haven't they haven't planned the evening, or they know they don't have to get dressed up, or there's the cultural expectations of of how they should uh, dress or what should they should have with them in this or that context, or or maybe a little more fluid too. I don't know. Um, I just point. know that if I'm going to meet if I'm going to have a meeting with someone in, in New York, I have to schedule it before I show up. Yeah, that's if I want to have a meeting with someone in the Bay Area, uh, it's more likely that I can call them up and have and 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 ha- make that happen. You know, there are the, the, the other argument is that you can look at it both ways. Is everyone says that people in the valley are flakier. Maybe <laughs> they don't show. They don't show up for meetings. They miss me. Oh, did I double book? I'm so sorry. Dave, you're you're in the Midwest. How would are these things rolled into the Midwest? How is that different? Uh, I don't. You know, I I I don't spend a lot of time in the Midwest, Heather. To tell you the truth, I live here, but <laughs> um, most of my business activities are elsewhere. How does right. it work to not live where you're doing business? Do you recommend that? Do you think it helps creatively and it helps you be more fluid with things? Uh, well, I mean, this is just a pure kind of a tangent, but purely unrelated, you know, to the topic we're discussing. But if you travel a lot, it, it's kind of handy to live in the middle, you know, because your yeah, flights are Yeah, that's shorter. true. <laughs> and the cost of living is lower. I mean, you can just, you know, yeah, outsource sure. everything and... When I started to explain, uh, uh, probably, I think, you know, 90% of our customers were in Silicon Valley or around Silicon Valley, and uh, most of them didn't know we were in St. Louis because we had a web, you know, our, our website, and we did most of our work through over the Internet or through the phone. And uh, um, I think we had probably had quite a few customers who thought we were there, but... Uh, do you think culturally, I mean, people are, are saying, well, why does everything have to be to both coasts? These, you know, th- say some ideas in game storming. Other than folks who are also designers in the Bay Area, do you see receptivity to using this stuff with clients in the middle of the country, or do you not ever have them in the middle of the country? Oh, I see a, I see a lot of, I mean, people all over the world, not just in the U.S., not just in the coast, not just in the Midwest, um, are are struggling with wanting to have more uh, better things happen at work. I mean, they, mm-hmm. you know, the boring meeting is everywhere, and including Silicon Valley in New York. Mm-hmm. Um, the meeting where people show up, but they're just, 
they open their laptops and they're checking their email and nobody's paying attention and, you know, people aren't present and that's happening everywhere. Yeah. And uh, there's a huge hunger for, you know, how, how can I get people not only just to come show up to my meeting, how do I get them to actually be fully there engaged in the meeting and engaging with the content of whatever it is that I want to, to work with them uh, on. Because, you know, six people showing up to my meeting reading their email is not really helping my project move forward. Um, it's not really helping me get more, you know, creative ideas. It's not helping me move anything. It's just kind of like uh, treading water or riding on a stationary bicycle. It's kind of got a lot of the, acti- a lot of the p- appearance of activity, but... You know, there's actually no progress being made. And so I think this is a very common uh, issue. And I think what people are uh, telling me that are adopt, I mean, the questions I get are pretty common. Well, how can I bring this to my workplace? How can I get, I mean, I have a very formal workplace or I have a very, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of skeptics in, that I'm working with. How do I start, you know, moving this stuff forward? And I get the you know, same questions. There yeah. are some real challenges, and so I don't know I. how – I'd be interested to hear how you two answer this, but my answer is you got to start small. Right. That's how I – that's it. That's how I answer it. <laughs> you got to start, you know, you got you to start. start by moving them, uh, nudging them in a slight ways in the right direction and, you know, uh, you know, start to uh, get them – well, okay, maybe the first step is just to get them to pick up a pencil in a meeting and actually – write something or draw a circle or maybe it's to just get get them to come without their ties or whatever it is but you know you gotta um you gotta take start taking those small steps before you're gonna be able to have something big happen and actually to that to that point dave i've done a lot of work with the big companies also and i actually saw people at when i was doing work with procter and gamble um you know i actually saw them um you know, there's the lead by example, and then there's one person, and it doesn't have to be the head of an entire division can make a big difference. Sometimes, you know, doing good meetings is hard, right? And you've done this. I've seen you do it in rooms. Sometimes just getting people to enter a meeting and say, um, you know, in, in a very formal business sense, you know, um, tell, tell us something you did say that you were passionate about. Or, you know, just breaking that usual, today's agenda is about blah, blah, blah. You know, mm-hmm. breaking behaviors. And that's something that we talk about a lot on Tumbling. Bringing that human side into the room can make a huge difference. It, you know, I've also been in the other extreme in meetings in San Francisco, to go back to that, where there's no agenda, there's no meeting, there's no anything. So it, it's, it's in between the two. But in the bigger businesses... Well, don't forget, very, there's um, also the fake... Like let's all get along, which is kind of like the oh, yeah. of, oh, God. Uh, Comic Sans trying yes. to make something look like it's handwritten, uh, but it really is done by a machine. Where it's yes. like, oh, let's pr- let's go through the motions of of uh, connecting with each other. Right. No, we know when that's fake. I mean, you know, you know when that's not really happening, and usually that's in an organization that people are afraid to get punished for stepping outside the box. But um, you, you have to start in little ways. You have to make it safe for people to make mistakes, right? Yeah. Yes. The thing that um, – that's a big part of it. So you say make it safe for people to make mistakes. Mm-hmm. Uh, usually what I'm talking about or trying to show more is emotional containment. And small is, is part of that, so you're not overwhelmed. I think that's really great advice. And the other is going first, uh, which is a big part of pummeling or I'm presenting, and how to really help um, – 
the other person feels safe. Really take care of them. The, the, dealing with the, the what's really going on to me, which is that they're emotionally concerned more than you know any kind of. We have a the reason people are saying we have a process or reform or any of this stuff is because it feels uncomfortable to do it differently. People are afraid, feel afraid that it won't work, that they'll be hurt, that there'll be repercussions. It's all emotion. So that that's the, the take I usually get is to try to help people see how in, in containment works. I do it. I t- try to teach them how to do it. And they could feel if that's how you draw other people out, that you, you make it easier for them to come out. And I, I've never seen a place that didn't or where I don't know anybody who doesn't want attention. I've never met a person who didn't want attention. That works what? every me, me. No, sorry. That, that always works. <laughs> My turn. <laughs> sorry, just kidding. I'm just watching by the way, I'm just watching Gary V put out his phone number to call into his <laughs> call into his serious radio show on Twitter. <laughs> yes. Give and me attention. Oh, oh, you're saying that he wants attention or he's trying to Yeah, get he it. wants attention right now. No, he wants attention now. He's like, call in my number right now. Call now. I'm live. <laughs> I just thought that was funny. And I love me, Gary, but, you know, he is about the me. So. Oh, but he says he's all about you. No, he's about him. He's about me liking him. Because he says he's about you. I mean, I think that dynamic goes on a lot. Do you see that, Dave, and sort of how I'm going to open up a meeting and write with other people? Maybe it's going to be the last thing we... We settle on before because I know Deb's got to run and we've, we've started and run the show late tonight. And I, I thank everyone for their patience. Um, do, do, where do you think that comes down? The I'm really helping you guys or I'm here mostly so that you guys affirm me. That whole dynamic in a meeting, in a talk, in, a, in any work or creative process. Well, yeah, I mean, I agree. We all like attention. And I think part of it is what's ha- happened is that we – um, we've found a lot of us on the internet a vehicle that allows us to suddenly have a voice, and now more people than ever have a platform or you know a way. Anyone can start a blog. Anyone can uh, you know express their ideas. And um, so when we go into more traditional environments where we're supposed to sit in chairs and listen to somebody up on a podium talk, um, we're like, hey, what the fuck? What happened to my voice? Right. You know, I, I, I'm supposed. To, that's why people are tweeting. Excuse my language. But it's like, hey, uh, wait a second. I'm supposed to be able to. Com- I, I'm, I'm supposed to be able to comment. I'm supposed to be able to write my blog post that tells, that says that their blog post is stupid or whatever. Right. Uh, so that and people have this uh, suddenly this desire. They're used to looking at, at media as something that that comes to them. And it used to be people just read the newspaper and nobody nobody really questioned it. But I think you know media is changing and we're our expectations are changing. So our face to face. You know, interactions have to change as well. They have to catch up. Right. That's what I've been totally, you know, yeah. focused on. And that's what Aaron Sorkin, to bring us full circle, uh, I don't know how comfortable he is with it. He's written a very tight movie, and it's very successful, Social Network. We open with a little conversation with that. We'll, we'll plop back in here. Um, and I think, you know, he's not so comfortable with the fact that everyone can talk back. And, and the Zuckerberg character in the movie when he blogs, you know, randomly in the middle of the night, his anger at the woman who just dumped him right. or how he feels about stuff is then later kind of shoved in his face as, hey, you thought your little trivial thoughts in the middle of the night were like literature and mattered to other people. But like you hurt me and, you know, who cares about what you think? 
Well, what, what the way to bring this back into the game storming and all the stuff we've been talking about, whatever coast you're on, whether you need attention, now that we all have our voices, we really are, whether it's in corporations with game storming and collaborating and, you know, what's the new social fabric of organizations, or whether it's in culture. I mean, you know, Heather, I talk about this. You know, we need a new sense of what etiquette is in this real-time world that we live in. And I think we're reconstructing together a lot of these new norms without while still having lived in the old norms. And that's the big sort of what are the human dynamics in business or in society today that, that are impact. We hear this every day, bullies, not bullies, you know, a company that says something when they shouldn't. Living in this, in this way, we, it, you know, we're all acting really poorly, but I actually think what's pushing and what's going to happen, what's happening is it's demanding us to actually be more civil. It's just going to take a while for us to get there. Because once everyone comes full circle and is on both sides of that equation, having been wronged publicly or having done the wrongs, people are going to start tapping into, and with my glass half full tonight, they're, they're more human side. They're just going to, it's just, they're going to have to. It's just a new front porch. And Well, and the, it is clear to me that in the time between now and then, it's a little bit more uncomfortable for yeah. people who aren't used to publishing back themselves or who work in environments where they're not allowed to express themselves exactly. their jobs. And, and there is a bunch of that. And Andrew Hazlitt was just saying to me, producer Andrew, this morning, oh, you know, Washington, D.C., it's just full of this culture of people not taking risks, this sort of high school uh, gotcha. president kind of person who doesn't want to actually take action. They do everything they can to not really do anything. And I guess my response to that was, you know, Facebook, like give it 10 years, you'll know what everybody said when they, they won't, who will have a perfect public fake fate. So I think it'll be tough to keep that up. So well, going back to the the whole idea of technology as it and its relentless advance, you know, and there there not being much we can do to stop it, I think we're headed for a world. Uh, it seems, you know, if you extrapolate the trend, we're headed for a world without privacy. We're headed for a world where uh, everybody is doing almost everything that they're doing in a public arena, and. Uh, you know, it's you potentially are being recorded or on videotape or and it's not necessarily even a big brother kind of a thing. Right. It's just the nature of media. So, of course, our mores and our 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 you know, what's polite and what's impolite is going to have to change. I mean, it, there's no question, you know, that the the technology is kind of hurtling in that direction. Well, uh, I, I think this happens before. We were on this trajectory before the technology. I mean, if you look at Jerry Springer shows in the 1980s, you see people talking in public about things that people weren't talking about in public before. And you look at right. what feminism wrought through the 60s and 70s around making personal experiences political, people acknowledging private wrongs that weren't acknowledged before that, whether it's abuse in the family or addictions. You've seen a cultural trend and destruction for a while. And I think the technology is, you know, putting through, like you're saying, Dave is making it go, you know, take, make a light speed jump for sure. But I think that it also reflects our tendency to put stuff out there. And in my feeling is it happens because people want to be listened to and, and don't feel as hurt. But I, I don't want to open up too big a, a giant, uh, <laughs> opener conversation, conversation opener. We need to, to wrap up, but maybe Dave will come back and we can talk a little bit. You know more about that. And, and yeah, I want to come back when uh, when he, when uh, when um, when you guys uh, kind of video. 
Well, yeah, when you get the technology to allow us to, to sketch as we're talking or to, to be able to, to interact in a, in a more visual way, I mean, I'm, I'm, if, if there's anything I can do to accelerate that, let me know. But I, oh, I, I, would, be excited, I would be excited to find oh, to, we'd love that. You know, where we can do that. That's know? what we'd like to do. And we very much, and we've got, we've got some ideas about how to get video back here, but also so we can have the multi-sketch place, which is fun. Even the little yeah. bit we played with it together was really cool. Um, so yeah, so I'll, I, be deli- I'll be, I'm delighted to come back anytime. Awesome. We'd love to have Thanks you. Thanks for your patience. Uh, and pre- producer Andrew, thank you for your patience tonight and getting things up. We'll be having hopefully soon shows. I don't know if Andrew, uh, are we going to have Yuri or shows with Yuri Engstrom and, and Shilmora Binowitz up soon? Maybe let us know, Andrew. We're hoping soon. Uh, I will be at, in just two days, one day, at the John Stork Stephen Colbert rallies in Washington, D.C. And I'll, uh, I'll definitely do some, some recordings. We can podcast about it. And if I find a place on Sunday, if anyone knows anyone in Washington, D.C. with a strong Internet connection that I can go to that's quiet on Halloween night, <laughs> I'll be streaming uh, and guesting on Twitch. On East meets West about about what what went down at the rally. So yeah, you should contact ready? Greg mm-hmm. if you know. Oh, wait, that's a grand deal. We'll contact Greg. Until then, if you're interested in an presenting workshop, I've got requests from many many cities. We'll be putting up uh, groups you can join soon. If you want to come join one, or you want you want one in your town, so let me know. Sendpresenting.com. Deb, anything you want to let folks know about? No, I am blissfully. Um, not speaking anywhere in the next month or so. I will be back in New York, and I promise to do some more comparisons for the Thanksgiving holiday, and I'll have news shortly about some other projects I'm working on. Fantastic. And Dave Gray has a new book out, Game Storming. You can get it at, can you get it at GameStorming.com? Uh, it's GoGameStorm.com. GameStorming.com is some kind of uh, link farm type, you know. Delightful. Uh, it, uh, it was already taken. <laughs> GoGameStorm.com? GoGameStorm. Yes, GoGameStorm.com. All right. So, Dave... uh... And that's a group blog, so it's not just like go buy the book, go read about it. It's like go join, write about your experiences, give us, you know, share some of your uh, work practices, you know, get, get connected and have a conversation kind of place. Very excellent. And, uh... It was really, really fun to have you here. And thanks to everyone who came tonight and stay with us. And uh, we will see you back again next week when uh, our guest is, is it Stowe next week? Uh, it might be Josh Klein. Hold on. Hold that thought. It might be. It's either Josh or Stowe. And I will tell uh, you. Anyway, we've got great guests coming up. We've got one of the top performance artists in the world today, Heather Woodbury, later and, in, in November. And, and uh, Tara Hunt coming up. And. And Josh Klein is next week, author of Hacking Work. It's kind of a cool topic. We're in oh, that'll be fun. That'll be yeah, really fun. Come, and Dave, come back. We have people join come the listen and chat join. room. And eventually, technologically, we'll be able to pull more people in so you can hear everyone's voice, we hope. So we can more, tumble more. Thanks, everybody. Rock out this week. We'll be, uh, and check us out online. I'll be on Twit Sunday night, 8 o'clock, East meets West, around the Colbert Stewart rallies or at subvert.com. Yes, thank you, everyone.